Before we begin, I'd just like to say thank you to my friends at Hair Saloon for supporting this podcast and for providing space at their corporate offices to record it. Hair Saloon's mission has as much to do with the restoration of men as it does with the business of haircutting. They try to make a difference in the lives of the thousands of men who come through their doors every week. Hair Saloon is based in St. Louis, Missouri, and if you've ever been interested in running your own business and want to work with great people, I would highly recommend you check out the Hair Saloon franchise opportunity. Go to hairsaloonfranchise.com to find out more information. That's hairsaloonfranchise.com. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and to please take two minutes to give us your review. And if you have a question or a comment you'd like to share with our listeners, go to Suzanne at the SuzanneBankerShow.com. Welcome back to The Suzanne Benker Show. I'm your host, Suzanne Benker. There's a well-known secret among those in academia that left-wing groupthink rules. This is especially true when it comes to gender. Fortunately, Jordan Peterson's rise to fame brought this truth to mainstream America. Most Americans are now well aware that our universities are bastions of postmodern feminist dogma. This outrageous anti-male, pro-female bias has squelched any honest discussions about matters such as American history, sexual violence, false allegations, male privilege, and so-called female oppression. Janice Fiamengo, professor of English at the University of Ottawa, is intimately familiar with this phenomenon. From some professors' view that women should speak first in all university discussions, to anti-male shaming campaigns, to so-called consent courses where men are taught not to rape women, to op-eds by feminist professors with titles like, Why Can't We Hate Men? Janice has lived inside this world for many years and will share with us the inner workings of a typical university in North America today. She is also the host of The Fiamengo File, in which she reveals the fraud of academic feminism by examining its tenets, bizarre obsessions, outlandish claims, and its impact on Western culture. Welcome, Janice! No, thank you, Suzanne. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Sure. Thanks for joining us. I'm excited to talk to you. So I wanted to get started by just having you tell us a little bit about you, about how long you've been doing what you do. And and, um, more specifically, I'm curious as, as to whether or not there was a time when you noticed this shift taking place in our universities or if it was more of a gradual thing. Okay, great. Well, I should say, first of all, that I'm actually a former professor of English. Now I retired okay. in, at the end of June of this past ah, year. So happy retirement. Yeah. I hope it's treating you <laughs> thank well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, uh, I was, I was pleased to get out because I've found, I've found academia an increasingly untenable place to be. So, uh, and it, it, I, I found that actually from the very beginning, I was um, someone who loved literature and my my dream throughout my whole life um, as a student was to become a professor of English literature. And uh, so, you know, I did all the, the things you're supposed to do. I did uh, a, a bachelor degree, a master's degree, a, a PhD, and uh, it was when I was doing my PhD that I was really, I think, um, most engaged by feminist theory. So I have to admit right off the bat that I was someone who found feminist theory quite compelling. 
And um, I think it is compelling if you don't know anything very much about the real world and you're in an echo chamber. It tells you as a woman that you are an innocent victim in a world that has, from the beginning of time and right up to the present day, held you back and prevented you from, you know, realizing all of your life possibilities and has subjected you to all sorts of, um, you know, dehumanization, objectification, uh, demeaning language, the, the um, humiliations of the male gaze uh, that has um, prevented you from fully realizing your potential. And, and it's a wonderful ideology in the sense that uh, it gives you a purpose, you know, smashing the patriarchy, and it's a purpose that has wide social recognition. So you can stand up in a room and make some statements based on very little knowledge about the world, and many people will listen to you, and you will, in fact, be applauded for making ignorant and uninformed assertions. Uh, and it also excuses you from any personal failings, because you can always tell yourself that whatever it is that's causing you unhappiness or a sense of frustration is actually not your fault it's the fault of this wider system of oppression so I you know I was um, I thought well this is what I'm going to do then I'm going to teach literature from a feminist perspective and uh, that's a you know very worthy kind of activist social goal but then as soon as I got into the actual academy and started teaching I could see right away that all the things that I had been taught to believe were true weren't true and that the young men in my classrooms were not privileged oppressors and the young women in my classrooms who far outnumbered the men in in you know in in English departments the ratio is about 80-20 female to male and yet we're still going on and on about uh, how, how uh, you know about male privilege yes. and how women you know women's voices must be centered etc so i could see right away that not only were the men in my classes not privileged oppress oppressors but they were also they were nothing like the caricature that I had been taught about. And you might say, well, you know, I was in my early 30s at this point, didn't I know that? And and yes, at some level I did. I had, you know, I had a wonderful father. My experiences at university were all positive. I had wonderful male mentors who never treated me badly as a result of my being female, you know, who are encouraging and respectful. Yet somehow I still did believe that somewhere out there, there was a patriarchy that was giving men privilege. But anyway, it soon became apparent to me that that simply wasn't the case. And I started to imagine life from the perspective of these young men sitting in the classroom, listening to all this garbage, being told that their sex is uniquely evil that they're responsible for everything wrong in the world, whether it's capitalist exploitation or the degradation of the environment or the oppression of people of color. You know, it's always men, particularly white men, although other men don't necessarily get a pass, that all the things their forefathers achieved, the, you know, the creation of a previously unimaginably sophisticated civilization where everyone has previously unimaginable comforts, um, you know, prosperity, security, 
of convenience. Those things, of course, are, are never mentioned. And always the assumption is that women could have done all of that and done it better if they hadn't been held back. And, and let me stop uh, you and, there just for a second, because I think that's that critical distinction between how you view the past is absolutely critical for how you think today. So if you mm -hmm. have that misrepresented idea that patriarchy was instead of giving us what it's given us um, uh, in America overall, technology-wise, medicine, all of that, um, and we see it as the opposite, then the, the very framework that you're working with is 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 always going to – you're not going to go in the right direction if you think it's negative ever. So there's nothing mm -hmm. you could say if that's where your starting point is. Yes, absolutely. If that's where your starting point is, then, um, well, then it means that there is no measure today to advantage women and other you know, minority and, and so-called disenfranchised or marginalized peoples. There's no measure that could be taken that would advantage them right. even, you know, vastly unfairly that wouldn't be justified. And, you know, to a certain extent, you could say, yes, if the entire history of the human race is a history of white men marauding around and oppressing everyone else and having a great time while they did it, well, then one could say, well, you know, perhaps the the pendulum has swung quite, uh, you know, quite far in the other direction, but that's all justified. Right, right. The Me Too movement is a perfect sure. example. We cannot exactly. look at it for what it really is, a few bad apples doing wrong. Instead, we have to label half our population as being naturally prone to that behavior. Well, that can only come from a mindset that, as you say, goes back to the very beginning in terms of history of oppression. But if you understand how good men are and that it wasn't that way, that won't be where your head goes. Right. Exactly. And I've seen many feminists make the, the overt statement, and I also know that many feminists think this way and might not actually say it out loud, that even if a few men are you know, falsely accused and suffer as a result of that, or even if a few men you know, go to jail on the basis of a, a, a wrongful conviction, well, you know, that's that's... That's okay because that's the of price we have this. to pay, or they have to. Yeah, pay. that's yeah. the price we have to pay to finally have it that women's voices are heard and that women are believed, and that the you know horrific, widespread wrong of sexual violence is finally recognized and addressed. And they they genuinely believe that. And and it what it contributes to, of course, is as you're saying, um, a completely skewed view of society. And also, I think maybe just as seriously, well, I'm not sure if it's as serious, but anyway, the stunting of women's humanity and the, mm. the um, you know, radical evis evisceration of women's empathy. Because how can you feel for a man who, you know, has lost his reputation and his career on the basis of an allegation, or even a man who is sent to jail on the basis of an allegation for which there is no evidence, but for which we believe the woman, how can you really feel for him if you believe that he is the <laughs> descendant of forefathers who did all these supposedly terrible things? I mean, the domino effect of just that one erroneous framework of history of, of the history of male oppression, it's just mind-boggling. That's a perfect example yeah. of, there's nowhere to go with it. So can you explain to people exactly how this led to 
tell people what identity politics really is. I know a lot of the people listening to this do kind of know, but I think it's helpful to have it sort of defined very clearly. Well, identity politics in the simplest uh, definition is simply a politics based on your individual group identity and the ideology that, um, you know, that everything that matters about your experience in the world uh, can be based, can be understood on in, in terms of one's physical characteristics, one's gender, one's race, intersectional feminism, which is really um, responsible for identity politics. You know, it, it, it focuses perhaps primarily on gender, but, but almost equally on a whole bunch of other variables, which it also contributes uh, or puts into this mix of the hierarchy of oppression. So that includes, um, you know, race, uh, disability, uh, religion, class, although we don't hear very much about class lately, uh, sexuality, you know, a whole bunch of other, even, even body size. And, um, and so this slots people into a hierarchy of oppressed identities in which the person who can claim the most oppression is the one who should be listened to the most and who has deserved the most you know, respect and, and compensation for their history of marginalization. And the, and the person who is supposedly at the top of the hierarchy, which is always the heterosexual, able-bodied white man, right. is the one who must shut up and, and, and listen and make compensation. And, uh, yeah, it's a hideously divisive view of the world. And, you know, it's so crude and reductive. It yes. does the very it does the very thing that feminists have, have claimed that they hate about the patriarchy. I know. So, <laughs> and then when you, when you have someone who's a female, such as myself, and I'm sure you and lots of other people, <laughs> yes. who come out and present a different going back to that framework again, a completely different way of viewing not only the history of men and women, but men as good people at heart, not bad. And you present, so the other day, for example, I created this meme and I posted it on Facebook and it was called the 10 Feminist Commandments. And I had pulled it from an earlier book I wrote in 2011 called The Flip Side of Feminism. And at the end of that book, I had these feminist commandments. So I just created a little meme out of it, posted it on Facebook and oh my lordy, um, you know, you never know what's gonna what's gonna hit. I really didn't think much about it when I put it up there, but certainly uh, the radical left got a hold of it, and there's like well over a hundred thousand people who found it, and then thousands of comments, and it's all, you know, I look at the comments and I, 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 I don't know why. I try I try to decipher like in my head what because the hate was so bad and the comments are so awful like for example i'll i'm going to dedicate my next abortion to you let's use that one mm -hmm. as an example <laughs> and i can't i'm trying to understand how a human being can allow an ideology basically these commands were just arguing what feminists stand for and what they've suggested is the right way to live and i was mocking it and saying that's that's you know not good and they were coming out in favor of course of their ideology but how do you get to a point where an ideology can control really your your brain, you know, the way you think so that you don't even have your core identity of your own anymore? Like what makes a person allow that to be? 
I think we all want explanations, overarching explanations for the world and uh, structures for uh, how we should understand uh, our, our fellow human beings and our own experiences and including who we should love and who we should hate. And uh, so we've got rid of Christianity as the overarching explanation for for our world. And Christianity has some very clear commandments about, uh, you know, hating the sin, but loving the sinner and the fact that we're all fallen human beings, you know, who are saved only by the grace of God, you know, those kinds of ideologies, even if one doesn't believe in the, you know, in the, the central tenets of the Christian worldview, doesn't really believe that Jesus was God who died for our sins. Um, there was a time when those ideas had some degree of currency in our culture. Now that's no longer the case or, or it's significantly diminished. And intersectional feminist ideology has to a large extent, certainly in the universities and in, in elite culture, has stepped in and has taken on a kind of religious aura. It dictates you know, what we believe, what our values are, whom we love and whom we're allowed to hate. And the, uh, the god or the goddess of intersectional feminist ideology is not a forgiving god. And we're not all equally fallen creatures. We are, some of us are not fallen at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> some of us who are at the top of the, or at the bottom, depending on how one understands it, of the intersectional feminist hierarchy, the most oppressed, are without sin. And so we therefore can cast the stones at the fallen those oppressors, those privileged ones. And uh, so that's an ideology that is so opposed to hate, as they say, that they believe they can hate with impunity. And it's a wonderful, what, what an exhilarating yeah. thing, you know, you to, power. Yeah, it, makes you feel it powerful. gives you incredible power and power without any kind of accountability yeah. or responsibility, because anything is justified. If you believe that the world or, or our society, North American society is really as bad as the radical left says it is, which is, you know, supposedly it's it's the most hateful yeah. society that ever existed. So if you believe it's really that bad and that women are suffering daily, you know, from horrific sexual violence and mm -hmm. people of color are, are, and, and, you know, Muslim immigrants, etc., cetera, uh, deal daily with the hatred of their, um, their, their fellow citizens. If you believe that, then anything is justified in over, order to overturn it. And you are you know, perfectly righteous in hating your fellow human beings, anybody who mocks that ideology or points out problems with it. Does your marriage or love life feel hard? I get a lot of emails from readers who are struggling in their relationships. Unfortunately, the help an individual or couple needs can rarely be answered in a series of back and forth emails. For this reason, I offer coaching for individuals who are struggling in their relationships and for couples whose marriages feel stuck. Just go to SuzanneBenker.com and click on Coaching at the top to sign up for a session with me. That's SuzanneBenker.com. So I have this theory, and I don't know what you think, but that I really feel like the only way to counterbalance or counteract, really counteract, this this propaganda, I truly believe this, is is through parenting. Because, so for example, I, we, I have a son and a daughter, and they're college, one's college age, one's almost college age. And I can almost guarantee that neither one of them would ever fall for any of this when they get, and they'll be exposed to it to a certain degree, obviously, depending on where they go. And 
I, the only reason I can say that with confidence is because of the kind of household we had growing up where we were constantly discussing this stuff, my husband and I. It was a daily, I mean, definitely too much so. They would roll their eyes. Um, they're getting they're getting the counter message from the culture constantly, all the time, to the point where even if they wanted to not follow what we think, in which they're welcome not to, they at least heard it. And so mm-hmm. they're so they're so mature and balanced about these issues that there's just no way that they're going to fall for it. If anything, they're going to, you know, see it differently when they get exposed to it. So because of having had this experience in our own household, I really truly feel like that's that's the only control that we have to to do that is through our parenting. And I don't know that a lot of people are doing that. They just either aren't aware of it or if they are, they're not interested enough to counterbalance it, but it's so critical if you don't want your kids to all of a sudden end up in university and all of a sudden you find yourself having a kid with very different values from your own that mm-hmm. it can almost be really scary for some people. And I, I know those people. Yeah, I, I really, I feel for those people. I, I agree with you that it is absolutely crucial that young people hear a different message whether it's in the home, in their churches, in community groups, um, perhaps in alternative schools. Um, you know, there are various ways, I think, that we can try to insulate young people from the extremely pernicious effects of, of SJW ideology. Um, you know, oh, it's for people difficult who don't know that. for... Oh, sorry. Yeah. you got to spell out the acronym. Social, for yeah. A social justice warrior ideology. Right. That's the, yeah, the acronym, the, our contemptuous acronym for our for our en- the enemies who hate us. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's so difficult, I think, for a lot of parents and because you know, some parents, uh, as you said, they don't know very much about this ideology, which sounds very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And when presented by highly intelligent people, because let's not kid ourselves, many of these people at the universities or in politics and journalism, wherever it happens to be, they are extremely articulate mm-hmm. and smart. Um, they, they're just... They've been taken over, as as uh, Professor Jordan Peterson had said of them. Right. They are ideologically possessed, but they're still very smart and able to make a very good case yeah. for and, their point of view. It's very difficult if you are a parent who who doesn't have a university education or you know has a a degree in something something real rather yeah, than right, exactly. humanities or social sciences, <laughs> yeah. uh, or you're just so so busy. You know, yes. both parents. Exactly. are incredibly busy and they come home at the end of the day exhausted and they don't have time to watch things on the internet and to inform themselves in order to actually be able to challenge these ideologies it's really really hard it at is. least you know at least there is the internet and one can search out at least while they allow us while our betters at Google and YouTube and Facebook allow us still to have some kind of access to alternative voices but they're quite quickly and assiduously shutting those off right now. But at least, you know, there you can encourage your son or daughter to tune in to a Jordan Peterson lecture, for example, or all sorts of other really interesting alternative viewpoints that that show the the flaws in the reasoning. But, you know, um, it, it is very difficult. And I know people, wonderful people, um, like intellectuals, conservative intellectuals mm-hmm. even, 
who have found a son or daughter who, be, who was changed yes. after going off yeah. to university, Good came question. home angry, resentful, yeah. and alienated. It's a horrible, it's horrible, horrible thing. It's so horrible. So let's start with a little bit of that education right here, okay? We're going we're gonna to talk about some truths here that, um, you know, this, this will be an example of something where you can get alternative information. What are some of the ways, Janice, in which women are advantaged? not disadvantaged, <laughs> the complete opposite. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, uh, women are, have, have always, to a certain extent, been advantaged in the sense that um, the, the history that we imagine is the history of oppression is also the history of men building civilizations that protected women and children and therefore, you know, made it possible for human communities to flourish. And so I think one of the things that is really important to understand is that the history that um, feminism tells about the, the, for instance, the 19th century struggle for the vote. Um, and this is often presented as a clear instance of terrible injustice. Okay. How could it be, you know, that men denied women simply on the basis of sex the right to vote. So that's always one that's that's yep. brought out. And in fact, if you and it's very difficult actually to find this this research. Um, most people, you know, who even go through university um, or look on the internet are pretty convinced that yes, this was a clear injustice. There's nothing to argue about. It's a open and shut case. But if you do start disentangling the complex realities, you realize that the, for one thing, um, in the 19th century, uh, in the United States and Canada, there were very complex rules in place about which men could vote, and that not all men had, yep. were, were able to vote. There were property considerations. This varied from state to state, and I don't know all the details about the United States, but certainly in Canada, I've investigated it uh, in depth. There were property qualifications. There were income qualifications. The belief in the 19th century largely was that you had to have a, a stake in your society. You had to be a property owner. You had to be a man of a certain amount of, of wealth and achievement uh, in order to you know, make the important decision, political decisions about uh, leadership. And uh, so the time between all universal male suffrage and female suffrage was vanishingly small in the whole history of humanity. It simply was not the case that all men were able to vote and to participate in political life for centuries before women were able to. In fact, throughout the 19th century, the history of the 19th century was the history of struggles for, um, for universal suffrage. And many men also had to obey laws that they had had no voice in creating, which was the, the charge that feminists, the early feminists, first waivers, um, made about you know, their women's oppression, that they had to obey laws that they had had no voice in, in creating. So that's one a really interesting place to start is the history of suffrage. Yeah. The other thing that's really important to think about there is that men always understood that the right to vote 
and to have a say in one's in, in choosing one's government brought with it responsibilities, very, very serious responsibilities, mm -hmm. such as the obligation to potentially lay down one's life in war to protect one's nation. That was a obligation that was never put upon women. Of course not, because women were far too precious to be sacrificed in war. So, so what feminists now see as the privilege of men which was, to some extent, also came with this massive, horrible obligation that was premised on the idea of male disposability, that males, male bodies could be sacrificed in war, and that was unthinkable to those societies. It was unthinkable that that would be something that would be asked of women. When women did get the vote, women did not also have to take on that burden. So women were given a privilege that they claimed they'd been excluded from, and they were not asked to share the same burden of responsibility that men were asked That's to share. That's an excellent point, Janice. That's an excellent point. And if we, sh and if we move now more to the mid-century, I always like to point out that this supposed idea that feminists marched in the street to get women these wonderful lives that they have today do not hold a candle to what men did in terms of um, uh, labor-saving devices <laughs> that they created, so mm -hmm. male, male inventors, and of course the birth control pill. These are all things that happened prior to that marching. And then mm -hmm. in that way, you can say that it was really, and I like to say, because it really irritates them, is that men are actually the ones that we have to thank for liberation, not feminists. Yeah, men have always liberated women. The irony is that um, a great deal of the labor-saving sa technology that came into the home that made it possible for women to begin to agitate for you know, increased public involvement and greater um, professional freedoms, all of that came about because it was possible for women to leave the home for a greater number of hours because they had you know, all sorts of technology that liberated them from what had been hours and hours of drudgery simply to keep the household running. So in many ways, yes, I mean, men uh, worked to make it possible for women to feel discontent with their status mm -hmm. um, by, you know, introducing all sorts of labor-saving devices into the home. And, you know, this is always the incredible, sad, tragic irony of um, women complaining about their so-called oppression is that they are sitting in, you know, beautifully constructed rooms Air built by men <laughs> yeah with air conditioning, with wonderful furniture, with ventilation, with running water, with an incredibly sophisticated electrical system that allows for light and heat on cold winter days. The roads that they drove upon to get there were created through the back-breaking labor of men. The cars that they drive in were mm -hmm. created by men. You know, the bridges that they drove over, etc. Those um, wonderful rooms that they sit in talking about their 
their oppression, talking as uh, <laughs> right. Egyptian uh, Egyptian American feminist activist Mona El Tahawi said recently about how women should kill a certain number of men, should kill violent men in order to bring patriarchy to its knees. The room that she sat in that that room was not only constructed by men, but it's maintained by a small army of men after she left making all of her grandiose hateful statements it was mostly men who came in and cleaned that room are these men oppressors the men who take out the garbage the men who deal with sewage you know the men who work in in the oil and gas industries you never hear feminists talking about how they want to do those jobs the jo the jobs of coal mining and lumbering and fishing all of those jobs that have the highest mortality and accident rates where men end up maimed or or having very much shorter life expectancy because they've worked themselves into an early grave i mean there are all sorts of ways in which our society is still set up to protect women we, we tend to as a society be very much concerned with harms to women not with harms to men right absolutely and one of the once you gosh i mean this this truth that's hidden basically um going that that far back in terms of what men are really like versus what they're claimed to be like based on those in power who have an agenda is so far-reaching, um, certainly politically, but one of the things that I spend most of my time with is how it affects, of course, their relationships, marriage and relationships and families, and how not understanding that men are, in fact, naturally deferential and kind toward women, and that they're being shamed and told that they're, the opposite is true about them. People believe that, and it breaks down and hurts, obviously, the relationship with the opposite sex, clearly. And mm -hmm. you probably saw that conversation between Jordan Peterson and Camille Paglia um, a couple years ago. It was, it's on the internet now. And they were, they were discussing this breakdown. And Camille was saying how she felt like it's time for men to rise up and stand up and say enough is enough. You know, this is not who we are. You're wrong about us, right? Nobody's mm -hmm. done that. No man really does that. And Jordan countered back by saying that he's not he doesn't think men will or can do that easily because they're not and I happen to agree with this um naturally prone to fight with women no um, absolutely and and to prove to, like they're more naturally prone to want to take care of or to protect or to just do what needs to be done but not to sing their praises or not to fight it or duke it out with with women they'll duke it out with each other but not with women so I'm more inclined mm -hmm. to think that that's accurate because we haven't heard men really at all stand up, not even individually and certainly not as a group and say, you guys have it all wrong about us as a, as a whole. Mm -hmm. And it's, oh, yeah. you know, wow. it's true that that's what's needed, but how, how, how can we, I feel like it's the women, which again is what also what Jordan said, which I agree with. It's actually women like you or me or any other like-minded women who will stand up on their behalf. Yes. Yeah, that's a very complex subject. And uh, we could talk about just that for the whole rest of our conversation. It's so interesting. And, and it, it yes, for a variety of reasons, men do not tend to stand up and say, this isn't 
us this you know I, we're not like this and they are not like that i mean i hear from men sorrowing heartbroken men pretty much every day of my life over the internet and some of these men have been so badly treated they've been falsely accused at universities you know they've had the police visit them um, for the most minor and trivial of matters uh, some of them have lost their jobs. They've seen themselves passed over for promotion at work mm -hmm. because of affirmative action measures, all sorts of horrible things um, that you would expect would make them very bitter mm -hmm. and vengeful. And you I would think. never, yes, you would think, and they are not. They are not. The vast, vast majority of these men just want to call off the gender war. Mm -hmm. They, they, they want, they want to have community with women. They absolutely believe that women are uh, equally capable of doing a whole range of wonderful things. They want to work together with yep. women. Many, many of these men, young men especially, their deepest longing is to have a loving, intimate relationship with a woman and to have children with her and to live happily with her. And that's what they want. Mm -hmm. And it's so sad to me. And um, the thing is that um, you know so, uh, there are some men who are standing up. And I know I'm involved with those men. There's a, a movement called I mean, the yes. men's movement, yes. you know, the, and you know as well as I. And, and um, I think I was they, thinking they, more of, I know what you're talking about. And I'm and they're hated, you know. They, yeah. they are the most hated men. They are listed on the Southern Poverty yeah. Law Center's, you know, hate watch as misogynists and men who call for violence. Their words are twisted. Their motivations are twisted. They are condemned. I mean, we are a society, and this is the thing I really came to understand as I started to think about all these issues. We are a society that when we see a suffering woman or an angry woman, woman, we, we are inclined to listen. What is it? What's made her suffer? What's made her angry? And we tend to believe that there must be something, you know, and, and we want to act. And that's both men and women. And they, you know, they've done studies that, that show that um, both women, women have a much stronger in-group bias. And men tend to you know, when, when they see a woman crying or, or shouting out in anger, they want to listen. They want to fix whatever it is. Yep. The the attitude towards men who do that is the opposite. We turn away from men in pain. We don't want to see their pain, and we tend to see men's anger. We don't see it as justified anger. Mm -hmm. We see it as, you know, a violent rage. Yes. So men are handicapped in so many different ways if they try to, you know, if they try to say, I'm not a misogynist, Right. Then they're going to be accused of misogyny. It's, right. it's, it's terrible, you know. It's yeah, and so I agree with with Jordan actually that um, you know women are going to have to rein in. I think he used these this phrase: women are going to have to rein in their crazy sisters. Yeah, the crazy harpy women, sisters. I loved that. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's it, yep. right? And and you know, w women are the probably the the only. I mean, women and men working together, obviously, that's the ideal. But more women have got to stand up and say, feminism doesn't speak for me. I love men. I am grateful to men. I enjoy men. I like having male energy in the world. I'm thankful that men created the civilization that we have that has brought us so many incredible gifts. And I'm. I'm horrified by our society's continued indifference 
to all the ways that men are now suffering. I mean, male suicide is something that we almost never talk about. Look at the homeless on the streets. How many female mm-hmm. homeless are there compared to men? Are those privileged men, those men that are sitting out there on the sidewalk? If we look at um, you know, addictions, if we look at mental illness, if we look at the horrible pain of men who have been alienated by from their children in divorce, if we look at just the ordinary injustices of men being passed over at work for promotions or not being hired at all because of affirmative action hiring, which has been going on for at least 30 years. And they're supposed to just take that and grin and bear it. You know, in in so many ways, men have been disadvantaged and and passed over. And yet, you know, it, it just goes on. And all we hear when we turn on the news is that, you know, air conditioning is biased against women. Oh, I know. The, oh, I heard that. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Or yet another woman has come forward because a man made a joke in an elevator <sighs> and she was offended by it. And so he has to be expelled from the International Studies Association as happened last year, or yet another case of a man who donated $10 million, as happened at the University of California at Irvine, but happened to make some women feel disrespected because he had a way of lavishly complimenting women. He was in his 80s by this point. So they they expelled him from the university and took his name off the buildings and the scholarships that he had endowed. This actually happened to a man named uh, uh, Professor Ayala um, because he, he lavishly complimented too many women and the women turned against him and complained about it on the campus of the University of California at Irvine. You know, those are the things, the the types of things that our society is now hyper vigilant about. Meanwhile, the, the, you know, the crisis in male suicide goes largely ignored. So uh, yes, women need to start standing up and saying, let's care for our men. Absolutely. Amen. I have a I have a quick question for you before we start to close out here. How did all the how did being an anti-feminist, so to speak, affect your life at university all those years when you finally switched gears or what have you? Uh, it did. You know, it, I, I can't say that I was badly treated at all. I had um, many wonderful colleagues and I think they many of them strongly disagreed with with me. Um, you know, but, but I, I never felt that, that I was in any way disadvantaged as a result. And, but largely because I had my female privilege, if I had been a man saying the kinds of things that I was saying in department meetings and publicly, uh, that would have been the end of me. And so that's the other thing about, you know, women's, uh, anti-feminism is that yes, we'll be harshly criticized for sure. We'll get a lot of hate from the feminists, but we are incredibly protected. A false allegation of sexual abuse is not likely going to come my way as a result, whereas it is going to come for any man who, who rocks the boat on the feminist orthodoxy. Oh. So, yeah, I was I was really lucky, but I felt very alienated on a university campus. To me, it's 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 truly enemy-occupied territory. It's a very strange place to be, and I can't imagine being a sensitive young man on a, on a university oh. campus today. It's don't even get me. Now see that that's a whole nother conversation right there because our son is yeah. going off next year and it's just, it's heart wrenching. It's just heart wrenching. It, I, I, seriously, that's another, that's another podcast. I can't yeah. even get into it because it gets me emotional, but yeah, it's just, 
It's bad. Oh my gosh, Janice, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your coming on and, um, and opening people's minds and eyes to the truth of this horrible scourge that's going on uh, today. Where can people learn more about your work? Oh, um, well, I think if they Google my name, lots of things will come up. Let's, uh, spell, main... it. Let's spell it, your last name, Fiamengo. The, yeah, the last yeah. name is, it's F as in Frank, I-A-M-E-N-G-O. And I have a video series called The Fiamengo File, where I look at, you know, various feminist myths or or misrepresentations or, or cases of um, persecution of individual men. Um, so they get a flavor of, of, um, of my work there. That, that would be the main, the main way. And I also have a, have a book that I'd love to plug. Uh, yes. Oh, I meant to S- ask you about that. The sons of feminism. <laughs> yeah. It's Tell called us about sons, that. sons of feminism, colon, men have their say. It's a collection of 27, I believe, personal essays by men talking about what it means to be, what, what it has meant to them to be male in a feminist culture. Some of them have had horrific experiences of false allegations, that, that kind of thing, losing their jobs as a result of a false allegation. And some are just regular guys trying to go about their, their lives and, and reflecting on what it means to be constantly barraged by all of this negative messaging, telling them that they are absolutely no good. And uh, they're very eye-opening and um, very touching, heartfelt essays. That's wonderful. That should make somebody feel very um, supported in what they're experiencing, for sure. Yeah, I think for men. Like that on the market. Yeah, I yeah. hope that that male readers will find some comfort in in realizing that they are not alone. They're not crazy at all. What what they are experiencing is real, and I hope that some women will read that that collection. And and because men are always exhorted to put themselves in women's shoes, um, but I think it's time that women put themselves in men's shoes. Oh, amen, Janice. Amen to that. That's where we're going to leave it. Thank you so much. For coming Thank on. you. Thank it was you great. very much, Suzanne. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Same to you. Talk to you soon, I hope. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Suzanne Venker Show. My guest today was Janice Fiamengo. Don't forget to tune in next week when we talk with Alison Armstrong, author of The Queen's Code, about her work helping women learn the art of loving and understanding men. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. Have a great week.